Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. On Good Friday, we lingered a bit in the silence of Jesus when Pilate asks him, what is truth? Jesus wouldn't, or at least, at least he didn't, give an answer. And what I put forth in that sermon was that we humans tend to mistake explanations for the truth sometimes. Or maybe it's better said that we too often think the truth can be reduced to an accurate explanation. This was a mistake Jesus seemed careful not to make, not only before Pilate, but throughout his ministry. He spoke in parables and stories and sayings that took a simple question to a deeper level or exposed the real motive in the asker, or even, according to the Gospel of Mark, ensured that nobody would understand him at all. And maybe he taught this way because sometimes to be satisfied with accurate explanation that doesn't get to the messier heart of reality is to live according to a half-truth that can be more dangerous even than an outright lie at times. Here's another way into the idea. I once heard a philosopher named Alain de Baton say something I repeat to nearly every couple I meet with for premarital counseling. He said adults in loving relationships, and I don't think this should be limited to marriage at all, should learn to treat each other a little more like children. He didn't mean we should infantilize one another. He just meant that when a child storms into the living room and says, I hate you, any sane parent or grown-up friend will not assume that this clear and forthright statement, one that is closely tied to the actual way the child feels about you in that moment, is the whole truth. No, with a child, you'll begin quite generously, if you're not in a really bad mood yourself, to play out all kinds of possible scenarios that might lead to such an outburst. Maybe he's anxious about starting preschool, or maybe she's hungry or needs a nap. Well, Alain de Baton thinks we should give each other the benefit of the same doubt. Rather than accept at face value the outburst about how it really isn't that big a deal not to empty the, ba- the grass clippings from the lawnmower every single time, so couldn't you lighten up just a little? Just as an example, hypothetically. Couldn't we go upstream a little bit from these little dam breaks of emotion or unkindness and wonder if there might be more to the truth than what we've just heard? After all, would you like to be held responsible for everything you ever said when you were really just in need of a sandwich or a nap or maybe in need of a global pandemic to just go away? There's more to the truth than the transcript of our lives will tell, isn't there? And our relationships suffer when we forget or deny this. Now, I'm not here to re-preach a Good Friday sermon, even if, as someone said, it feels like April 79th, the 24th Sunday in Lent. But it occurs to me, reading that lovely, mysterious post-resurrection story of the walk to Emmaus, that faith, belief, as Jesus talks about belief, is also not as simple as accepting a convincing explanation. Faith is about being drawn deeper into the truth of how things really are. Deeper, perhaps, into the truth of who someone truly is. I've always been intrigued 
by the inability of people to recognize Jesus post-resurrection. Maybe you have too. There's Mary Magdalene at the tomb who in John's telling mistakes him for the gardener, but as soon as he speaks her name, recognizes him. In Luke, the Emmaus story draws out this process of recognizing Jesus all the way through a seven-mile walk and a dinner, but they share a similar shape, don't they? Recognizing Jesus is not a simple matter of receiving accurate information and accepting it as true. Seeing and believing are not the same thing. This kind of recognition is a murkier process. Well, until it's suddenly and mysteriously not. It seems telling that Cleopas and his friend did not recognize Jesus while he explained the scriptures to them on the road to Emmaus. That's not where faith comes in. Faith comes in a flash when Jesus blesses and breaks the bread at their table. And then he disappears. And when they remember the way he had been teaching them along the road after their eyes had been opened, the two men don't say, of course, he explained how all this was supposed to work. How could we have misunderstood? No, what they say is, were not our hearts burning within us? There was a deeper connection between their souls and his than an exchange of information about the way things are, marvelous as those things may be. I think this story is telling us something essential about faith. Faith in God, faith in Jesus, but also the faith we need to cultivate in one another. Faith is not about being convinced of the facts. Faith goes deeper down. Faith doesn't happen in the explanations along the road. Faith happens at the table, sharing the meal. A Benedictine theologian I love named Herbert McCabe makes a helpful distinction. When we say, I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus, or I believe in the resurrection, we can think it's the same kind of statement as, I believe there are nine planets, even if I haven't counted them, or I believe in Australia, even though I've never seen it. I believe in Jesus is not that kind of statement at all. It's more like, he says, to use another example from childhood, a child's belief that her parents love her. This belief is almost as necessary as food and drink, as one who doesn't believe she's loved may well refuse to eat. So when someone talks about the saving effect of faith in Jesus, it's not about the kind of belief that Australia exists. It's not that God pulls a lever when we're convinced of the impossible fact that Jesus rose from the dead and then grants us a mansion on a hillside after we die, as if we've won some cosmic game show. No, faith is that sustaining belief that we are loved. It is the starting place for a life of health and wholeness, not the result of accepting a convincing argument. And what Herbert McCabe says then, and what I agree with completely, is this. The whole of our faith is the belief that God loves us. I mean that there isn't anything else. Any proposition, any article of faith, even Jesus is risen, is only an expression of faith if it is a way of saying that God loves us. Full stop. And herein lies the crux of the matter. The knowledge of love, whether the love of God or the love of another human being, 
is not something we get to work out on our own, weighing the evidence for and against our belovedness. It is a gift that gathers in us over time, isn't it? And as the Emmaus story does not tell so much as show, the knowledge that we are loved by God is far more likely to come to us at a table sharing a meal than it is in the explanations on the way to dinner. You may well fall in love with the explainer on the road beside you, but your heart won't burn within you just because what she says is logically convincing. It will have as much to do with the way she cocks her head peeling carrots or how he listens to you like you matter or the quirky way she pronounces the town town you're walking toward or a hundred other little somethings that are hard to name or quantify or assess but that really are the way the knowledge of love makes its way into us. At the culmination of the road to Emmaus story is the sense that this is also how the love of God comes to us in the risen Christ. Think about it. Jesus himself is walking along with you and he interprets the mysteries of Moses and the prophets, but you don't come to know him in any of that. You recognize him. You fall for him, really, at a meal when bread is broken and a blessing said, and some of it is handed to you. Because love never really comes in by way of interpretations and explanations comes to us in all the little seemingly meaningless exchanges of everyday life that our relationships are actually made of. It's actually hard to read this story right now, in part because that meal at Emmaus looks so much like a Eucharist. That's where the lights come on for the two men, in the intimacy and the grace that comes to us when we share bread that's been blessed and broken and wine served by a friend in Christ. And as beautifully and heroically as we've seen people transcend the limitations on our lives right now, so many of us are starving and parched for the shared meal that is Eucharist, and also for the ordinary common meals with friends and lovers from which its sacredness was derived. In other words, some of the essential ways love comes to us are not available to us right now. We do well to admit this and to remember it. It's good to remember that the people around you are often doing their level best to get by, but doing so malnourished and cut off. They may need an extra measure of grace and forgiveness at times, even when we feel like we haven't got an extra measure to give. And we also may need to be honest and gentle with ourselves about the deep need we have for human touch, for the sharing of meals, for communion. For the million little unconscious exchanges where love gets into our lives, no amount of information will take the place of these, not for embodied creatures like us. That we are still hungry and thirsty and lonely for contact only means that we are still very much alive. The only loving thing to do right now is to stay apart until it's safe enough to come together again. We have to do this with and for one another and we'll manage because we know we won't have to live this way forever, even if it feels like that some days. But it might not be too early to consider that we may need help to help each other learn how to be close again when it's time. Our minds and bodies have been living in a world in which touch is first a potential source of infection. We may need to relearn together that, that even more essential truth, that touch heals and food becomes a sacred source of divine love 
when it's shared. The good news in this time in between. This time may be not so different from that first Sunday evening when Good Friday was a fact and the resurrection was still a rumor. The good news for us right now is that the longing we have for one another is a reminder that we were made for one another and that you and I are the way God's love gets into other people's lives. And who knows, when we are together again and the world makes a little more sense, we may look back on this strange stretch of the road and say, but remember the way our hearts were burning within us even then, as if Jesus were in the midst of us, stirring our desire for communion with him and with each other before we had the eyes to recognize it was him. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.